You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello all, I'm Kylie Crabb and I'm Robin Whittaker and this is the 24th Sunday after Pentecost and today we're going to be discussing Joshua chapter 24 verses 1 to 3 and 14 to 25, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 and Matthew 25, 1 to 13. And we're going to start with Matthew this week. We're in this um, apocalyptic section, the apocalyptic discourse of Matthew or maybe eschatological discourse with lots of parables about the kingdom, um, lots of dualisms, sheep and goats. We're going to meet dark and light, wise and foolish. Um, Kylie's going to take, give you, um, she's actually written an article that's forthcoming on this very passage in Matthew. So you're going to get a sneak preview of that in verbal form. So Kylie, what do we need to know? And maybe even starting with the way this gets titled as the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, which is a horrible translation, right? <laughs> that's dreadful. Uh, yeah, nice build up, Robin. That's all very good. Uh, yeah, that's right. Right from the beginning here, we've got trouble, hey? Um, it depends. I, I mean, I don't know what English versions people are actually working from. Uh, I generally use the NRSV for various things. I like its inclusive language, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then every now and then, of course, with any translation, there's something not so great. There is actually an updated version mm. of the NRSV that's just recently um, been released. So that is called the NRSV UE, updated edition, imaginatively. I guess they couldn't say revised again in the same sentence the revised revised <laughs> yeah, that's right revised 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 um and and it uses young women which is an improvement so mm. the, the greek is uh parthenoi uh, which literally is uh women of marriageable age who are not married so uh, mm. we might think that in that context you're reading it and um if you so if you use a word that means that in that context you might think oh well it sounds like uh, there's something about someone's sexual status that is uh, that comes to mind for you, but of course, traditionally, this was translated into English as virgins. And in English, I mean, virgin only talks about someone's sexual status, really. So mm. it's really over-egging the thing to talk about it in that kind of way to avoid the problem. The NRSV older older version. Um, says bridesmaids, which is clearly – it's completely not true. That's a kind of interpretation of what is – Yeah, that's be. it because yeah. it's a wedding kind of scene. Yeah. We've got a bridegroom, they've assumed – But everyone else must be bridesmaids. Yeah, and yeah. but this is not necessarily telling us something historical about how weddings worked or neither should we imagine ten women in matching pastel dresses <laughs> like right. some terrible rom-com. <laughs> that's right. I mean, if that's your plan for worship when you're talking about this <laughs> passage, getting people in, you know, 27 dresses or something, yep. maybe rethink because I think they're not necessarily <laughs> bridesmaids. We can move on from that. Uh, the updated edition says young women, which I think gets us closer to, mm. to there. But uh, we're, you know, there's basically no good word in English for that, but something to wonder about. Um, we've got a range of other things that are mm. interesting in, like, you know, while we're knit picking on some of these things. Uh, lamps as well, lampades, uh, it's it actually, um, it might be that people have grown up thinking about like this as like one of those clay lamps that, mm. you know, that has oil tipped in and, and whatnot. Or in fact, some people also sort of retroject some later 
Jewish traditions about uh, different ways light sources might be made out of oil, pooling oil. Um, when you're talking about Roman weddings, you're probably actually talking about torches. So it's something more like, um, you know, a big long stick or like something. Like a stick with yeah. a, a cloth dipped into Indeed. something on the end. Indeed. Okay. Yeah. So the other translation problem is when you get to the bit about, you know, they're trimming their lamps, Wicks. making it sound like, <laughs> yeah, you've got something that's like a contemporary candle or yes. kerosene lamp or something. It's more like what they're doing there is sorting out their bits of fabric that you dip in oil and mm. wind around the end and then um, I'm gesturing wildly here that makes no sense to people listening <laughs> yes, on audio. There are, there are actions <laughs> that you're not seeing. <laughs> you, can, you just have to imagine how I'm creating this <laughs> this uh, torch. Anyway, so we've got all of this going on. Um, Robin was saying about, you know, this bigger context, yeah, mm. so this eschatological um, discourse and you might read through all of it. It's going to come to us or it has a chunk of it already has done, right? Yeah, I was going to say we're at the end of the lectionary year so we've already had some sections of Chapter 24. The next few weeks are all going to be more of Chapter 25 so either way it's worth reading these couple of chapters together because we're very much in some pretty hard Kingdom of Heaven parables exactly. here. These are not easy to preach or easy to interpret, I think. Yes. So we're hoping you have all the answers, Kylie. (laughs) I am at least. (laughs) Well, actually, if people have been – some of our listeners here might have been participating in Preach Fest Mm. um, in in recent times. Um, And if you've heard Amy Jill uh, Levine talking about these – uh, talking about things you might have heard her talking about the definition of a parable. She was talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, but thinking literally about the word as being – uh, para, like things put in parallel, and mm. balo, like be, things being uh, thrown down or cast down next. So you, you're casting two ideas next to each other and having some kind of creative tension about this, normally like an everyday sort of setting yep. and some other big picture claim. So like lots of other parables, and we get even some other parables in Matthew that are about weddings, as you know, and Jesus as a bridegroom elsewhere in Matthew as well. Um uh, but it starts with, you know, this the thing that's being cast down next to each other is the kingdom of heaven will be like this. So we're yes. being invited to this creative one. Yeah, like an imaginative kind of exercise. Yeah. Like it, it's not something we can, you know, interpret literally or even allegorically like this is this and this is yes, this, right? Exactly. It's more like here's some things to play with, a whole series of images, and the question is how might this Help us think about God's kingdom. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So one of the things that we're at a disadvantage uh, for, for if we're trying to read how maybe a first century mm. reader might have read, is that we don't always know the very mundane, everyday domestic setting that these kind of images are used in. Mm. And so that's um, definitely part of the problem here with Roman weddings. Um, in fact, there's really a surprisingly... Uh, small amount of information that survives about the actual customs in Roman weddings. The thing we know the most about, funnily enough, for this parable, is things like what the bride would wear or how their mm. how her hair would be hair done would and be stuff styled. Like that. Yep. Yeah, but of course, one of the weird things about this parable is there is no there bride. is no bride. <laughs> yes, if you haven't noticed it, it's a fairly incomplete wedding. Yeah, it's really right. all about the arrival of the bridegroom. Yes, exactly, exactly. But one of the things, so so we might be missing some things about the tension between the way it's meant to happen and the way it's happening here. Mm. But some things that we might want to think about. Um, apparently, it's a little bit of confusion about how many torches you'd have at a Roman wedding, but uh, Plutarch certainly talks about there being five. Mm-hmm. So if you've got, you know, if we're thinking about the setup of this story, I guess, we've got ten women, five who are wise and five who are foolish, and 
that sort of seems to set things up from the beginning that you know something's not going to go well for <laughs> half of them. Yes. Uh, and if you were sort of wondering about that, then the other thing that really um, uh, clinches the deal uh, is that Plutarch tells us you should only have five torches at a wedding. So five are obviously mm. surplus to requirements. These yeah, people. so actually five is enough, is right? Yeah. Yep. It's not that ten were needed yep. and not found up to the task. Yeah, yep, that's right. And we could – we. I mean, I could go on all day, which I'm going to try not to do on this. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, there are various other bits of the story that, you know, you could you could play with and wonder about. You know, weddings actually were not really known to happen at night, even though there were these torches that were part of mm. the procession and stuff like that. So if it's happening during the day, you know, some some biblical scholars worry about this. Others point out that, of course, the reason it's night time is because of the delay. So you're waiting on the bridegroom. Yeah. So can I ask you about that? Is that yeah. something that we should – perhaps then read just as a practical thing that shows the length of delay or are we also to read night as its own kind of like you know all these I'm thinking of all these texts that talk about Jesus coming like a thief in the night that things that happen in the night like is that also a resonance going on here yeah yeah I reckon it is and Mm -hmm. um we get it I mean the only kind of clear time marker in the whole story is the arrival of the bridegroom happens at midnight and that surely is significant. So significant, yeah. right? Um, and yes, exactly the thing about the arrival of the thief in the night and stuff. With that, actually, is just in earlier in this same discourse in mm. Matthew. We've got a reference to that. It points forward potentially to First Thessalonians, which it is does. also on our agenda for today. So um, yeah, that. And I think, in fact, there's also kind of like a rhetorical thing or a literary thing about night. Um, some classicists write. Um, someone called um, Angelos Haniotis talks about night as being an intensifier of emotions. So Mm. there's something going on that it's night. And a lot of Christian literature does that, talks about night, talks about the dawn breaking, and there's a difference about that kind of thing. So Mm. I think it's meant to be kind of – it sort of um, taps into a set of stereotypes. It's a scary time. You know, so the thief in the night thing is, um, you know, Roman law says that if you're caught um, trying to steal something at night, then the penalty is greater. So it's big, it mm. sort of taps into the fear of the householder who might be caught unawares at night, and so you're a bit more vulnerable. Perhaps bit, you're yeah. in you're in your bed, yeah. you're not dressed, you're yeah. all of that. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, well, maybe there's another couple of things that we might wonder about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, and I'll I'll be curious about um, uh, your thoughts on this as well, Robin. That we've got, um, you know, there's this tradition, the the two ways tradition. Yeah where um, it comes, we'd see it in like Psalm 1 and 2, the, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Uh, and it comes into early Christianity and even in contemporary Christianity in talking about discernment language, um, yes. that kind of thing. Uh, here we've got, uh, just as earlier, like in the previous chapter, we've got a wise and a fool, and it, no, a wise and a bad slave, a kako, it's a bad slave. Yes, yes. Here we've got a wise and foolish women. Yeah. Um, so it's like... Wisdom literature. I don't know. Do you mm. think there's something we're meant to do with that here? Yeah, it's hard to know. It's um, I mean, I think it, it is about uh, you know we are in these dualisms, so it, it is part of if you want to be in God's team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, these are the traits associated with it, right? Wise, prepared. Yeah. Um, you know, in the previous story, this sort of shrewd, almost. Yes. Um, not not um. Yeah, useless, almost the useless slave, right? The bad slave. Yeah. Um, we're going to get it coming up with sheep and goats. Yes. So it, it's hard for me to know 
I feel conflicted about this language because it is typical of apocalyptic discourse that you do this kind of put people into categories, the us and them. The danger, of course, is if we start using that language in our time and place, particularly as Christians um, in places where we might be the dominant culture or have been um, and have power, um, the us and them language becomes really problematic and we need to think Mm. about how we use that and who we're excluding Yep. when we do that. But yep. I think it does invite us to think about the traits of discipleship yep. Yep. and what it would look like to be wise and prepared. Yes. yes. I've always been struck that the, the, the so-called wise women yeah. uh, do not share. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> actually, and this actually gets a bit of attention because the mm. word uh, – people might know – the, the word, you know, Sophia, the word yep. for wisdom. wisdom, that's not the word that's used no, here. No, it's not. Okay, so it's it's um, uh, phronimos. So we've got this, which is more like shrewd. You're quite right to mm. use that kind of language, Robin. Um, so Yes, prudent or something, prudent, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's the word, in, you know, it's in fact, it's the word that gets used about the dishonest manager and stuff in Luke, that other parable. So, yes. again, we're stuck with this thing where we have to be careful how much of the – parabolic information we want to transfer over and say God is like this or the kingdom is like this yeah. because sometimes it is like disreputable characters or, you know, that, that yeah. are actually the uh, making the point. And, of course, one of the things we have here, yeah, they're not sharing, which also seems kind of weird, um, uh, but we've, we've got this kind of um, – I, I don't know. There's, there's something I'm uncomfortable about about wanting to avoid the idea that, like, the good Protestant work ethic kind of person who yep. um, is all organised, I don't know, Boy Scouty or something, they're the ones, you know, the super they, they or, get rewarded or yeah, something, yes. The conscientious person or, you know, like, don't we don't want to get sucked into that kind of reasoning here, I think. There's something no. else. But it shows what's at stake, you know. Yes. And the final thing that I was thinking about this that I think is worth mentioning is that the um actually the irony that throughout this section the call is to keep awake right so keep awake you don't know when the you know if the owner of the house had known um uh, when the thief would come in they'd stay up all night you know keep Mm -hmm. awake but the irony is actually all the characters fall asleep all the all these women yeah uh, and, of course, the story that proceeds about keep awake, you don't know when the thief is going to come um, because – well, no, sorry. If the owner of the house had known when the thief was going to come, they would have stayed awake, but they didn't because it's impractical to stay. So in both of those stories, you can't stay mm. up all night. So uh, there's actually a kind of funny thing. So what what is actually being required here? Is it the preparation? Is it the discernment of, of watching for when the bridegroom comes? Yeah. Because you – you have to be kind of constantly ready but actually not constantly necessarily awake. Cause yeah, I know. And I do think we sometimes in agonising over these stories, as we kind of should because I think the puzzle does invite us to ask questions, but I really like that point because it is, it is ironic and maybe actually just quite funny that they all do fall asleep and drowsy. We get yeah. that in verse 5 and yeah. then it's like, but keep awake. And it's yeah, like yeah. so maybe one of the questions is, was anyone in this parable truly wise? Yes. So the the people we think are wise and prepared and have all their life together yeah. Yeah, <laughs> look yeah, like yeah. they've got everything, all their ducks in a row, as we say here in Australia. Yeah. Um, are they? Is anyone truly wise and is anyone truly ready for the arrival of the yeah. bridegroom? And I've just assumed in that kind of reading that the bridegroom is a Christ figure. Yes. But even that is problematic and we should – 
disrupt it because the bridegroom also shuts the doors to those, right? So Yes, it's do or die moment. You're in or you're yeah. not. So we need to read that lightly as well and not assume yep. it's Jesus or not assume it's the only thing to say about Jesus. That's right. We might have a – there's an interesting tension, illuminating potentially tension or – some difference with the story in Gethsemane. Yeah. Where the disciples fall asleep and and that's shown to be unfaithful, but it's also not the end of the story. So there's something yeah. in there as well. Sorry, one tiny, tiny final yeah. thing, which is that we have an interesting thing here too with this is a story very unusually where all basically all the characters apart from the bridegroom, groom, bridegroom are women. Mm. And so something interesting to think about that all the readers, if someone is faithful in this, that all the readers are being invited to identify with a woman. With a woman. In the story. Yeah, which is quite unusual. That is worth mentioning. All okay, right. Let's move. We're going to start talking about First Thessalonians in just a tick. Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion? Okay, Robin, this is a story that uh, has some some uh, pitfalls in it. Mm. What, what are you going to want us to watch out for here? Well, the big thing to watch out for is that um, I'm trying to work out which verse it is. Verse 17, this this is a passage of First Thessalonians that has been used as the basis for a whole rapture theology. Um, rapture, if you have not had the great benefit of being exposed to such things is actually a 19th century idea. Um, So for 1800 years, Christianity managed quite well without this, but this came out of um, uh, John Nelson Darby, a Plymouth brethren and was popularized in the Schofield Bibles. And then in the 1970s with Hal Lindsey in the left behind series, this idea that um, righteous Christians when Christ comes again will somehow be sort of beamed up off the earth taken um, and it's tied to ideas around the millennium and if you're taken up is the world then left for a time of tribulation for people to repent or otherwise and there's huge debates in this world of thought that quite frankly I think are entirely useless and a waste of time um, about whether the rapture happens before or after thousands of years of – and all of that is extra stuff that's actually from other parts of the Bible read in. Yep. So let's maybe give this some context. Yeah, yeah. This is our earliest probably Pauline letter, which also makes it our most – ancient part of the New Testament, uh, which I find just historically very exciting that we are reading something very early here. And it's pastoral. So we've got to start with the context here. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, is the word there. And the NRSV has made it nicer by saying uninformed, but it's really ignorant, Ignorant, um, about people who've died. So there seems to have been a concern about believers. It's now maybe 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. We could be as early as the 40s here. I don't know how yeah, yeah. you think about the yeah. dating. but um, And maybe for the first time Jesus' followers are dying and people thought Jesus would come back before that happened or maybe they thought because of the resurrection of Jesus no one who was a Jesus follower would die. Would die. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. And so Paul's addressing a very pastoral thing that people are concerned that Christians are dying and thinking, does that mean they're going to miss out on the resurrection when it comes? Yep. That's the pastoral setting. And I think if we reframe it with that, we read it as addressing a question of kind of what happens to our loved ones when they die. Yep. And he's saying, don't worry, when Jesus comes back, the dead will actually be raised first and then we get to join them. 
But I think the really important imagery um, for me here is that this language of going to meet Christ in the air, of going out to meet Christ, and we saw this in the um, bridegroom story of the women who go out to meet the bridegroom, is drawing on, um, you know, practices of triumphant processions and important people coming to visit. So when the emperor or a victor general of the army or someone, the queen, comes to town, you would go out of the town gates or the city gates to meet them and kind of process back into the city with them. So imagine a parade, people waving branches, a bit like Jesus' even triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? People go out and line the streets and then follow. So this isn't a meeting Christ in the air to then beam up to heaven. This is a going out to meet Christ to escort him back to earth. And I think in that sense, it makes more sense of a kind of a triumphal entry and is not about escapism. Mm. It's actually fits with wider New Testament theology that is about the recreation of this earth rather than the escape from it. Um, So for me, that invites for a preacher, I think, a set of questions around, as does the Matthew parable, what does it mean to go out ready to meet Christ? Uh, Again, to reference Preach Fest that we're at today, one of the questions we were posed you know, that at first seems flippant, but it was if, if Jesus invited you to dinner, the actual Jesus was there and said, come to dinner, would you go? Yeah. And of course we all go, yeah. And then you go, would you really? Like what would it feel like to sit opposite Jesus at a table? Would you be scared? Would you feel vulnerable? Would you be like, this guy knows everything there is to know about me and quite frankly I'm not worthy? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. would you worry about who else is there? Um yeah, he's got terrible friends that Jesus. I know. I know. Like, who? What are the sinners that you don't like? Are you going to have to yeah. sit at the table with? Um, so, you know, I think it does ask some questions about: Are we ready to go out and meet Jesus, and what does that look like? You know, we could play with mm-hmm. that a bit, mm-hmm. and and also that the movement of Jesus is towards us. So an absolute opposite reading of this kind of rapture where escaping this horrible evil earth, but rather that Jesus comes back to this earth is is the way Paul's thinking about things here. Mm. What Mm. what do you notice? Do you see any sort of Yeah, yeah. But I mean I think that's a it's a beautiful um it's a beautiful thing to imagine it, I think, in that pastoral context and mm. to think, you know, this is like a good uh funeral sermon or something, you know, going on a bit thinking about what uh, what does this mean? And a kind of, um, uh, I like as well that it, it, you know, you lead through that um, through that discussion and then come to then we who are alive, we who are left. You know, so mm. like what's you know, kind of how then will we live? Kind of part, you know, what yeah. what is our part of of this? Um, yeah, and the promise at the end there will be with the Lord forever. So again, this is eschatological. It's looking towards the end. So we're in a similar kind of mindset as the Matthew parable. Yep. Um, that at the end we'll be with the Lord forever, forever, but we'll also be with our loved ones who died. Yes, and yes. let let these words encourage you. Yes. Paul ends with here, yeah, like yeah. this yeah. is supposed to bring comfort. Yeah, exactly. You, yeah, and I think it it brings that comfort, and it's you know if you have a little bit of a sneak preview of where it's going next, which does connect to our Matthew reading, mm. and it's going to connect to where we want to go briefly in a tick with the Joshua reading, but, you know, it's moving into this, you know, what then about this kind of end time, the times and seasons yep. here, and uh, 
we, you know very well that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So if you're going to be thinking about this reading, I, I think it maybe comes up um, later in the lectionary, the next bit of First Thessalonians. Yeah, it does. It's, yeah. yeah, it's um, next week next or week. the week after. Yeah. Next so week you might be leading into it, yeah. right? Um, but then it goes into this further pol- polarising binary kind of language. But, you know, these are it's like this. It's kind of outrageous to say Jesus is like a thief that comes in the night. Um, you know, if a thief, a nighttime thief is a terrible thing, but we are people of the day. So there are yes. people of the night who get drunk, who do all this stuff. We are people of the day and the promises of God coming to us, Christ coming yeah. to us in at the break of day. You know, it is almost morning in the, in the next bit of, yeah. of First Thessalonians in chapter 5. So uh, I think that there is that comfort and there is this challenge also in the eschatological language, but it's insider language talking about, you know, comfort to people who might feel like outsiders um, that uh, the dawn is about to break. Mm. So I want to flip the conversation then and talk about the Joshua reading. Okay. Yes. We're right to do that? I think we are. Yeah. Yes. So let's and do to it. say, Robin, what happens when we, get, when, we, when we talk in Joshua there? We, there we also have a kind of implicit polarised language. Yeah, we do. Us and them. Yeah. Uh, What's what's gonna what's going on there, and what do we have to be careful about? Yeah, so we're in. I mean, these are hard texts to preach, uh, not only with what's going on in the world now, where we're very aware of the contested land that continues to be parts of Israel and Palestine, and whatever language you use for Gaza and the West Bank, and um, yeah. so very contested lands where you know, um, and of course in Australia, we who are white settlers that came from Europe um, are living on colonised lands. So we need to be really mindful of those dynamics and also that the way the Bible, uh, I think particularly around the creation of Israel as a nation state, which these Joshua stories are about going into the land, right? Moses took them to the cusp. Um, Joshua, then they go in and we do get this language of just being given this land carte blanche and Mm -hmm. there's violence that comes with that. Um, it is told from the point of view of Israel, but without really any sense that colonizing other people's land is a yes. bad thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So yep. this is portrayed it's as a gift. It's yep. all a gift of God. And yep. we just need to be conscious that there is another side to the story that we don't have here. Yeah. We might wonder what it felt like to be um, someone it whose land visit. was just taken yeah. from them. Yeah, yeah. So, so Robin, this strikes me as being. It, this may be an unanswerable question, just putting oh, you on oh, notice. thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to boldly ask you. No. The, well, I mean, we have this thing right in preaching or worship leading where we're trying to bring ancient texts to life in a way that's mm. relevant to our contemporary setting. And, of course, of course, that is super important in how we think about what it means for the lived experience of the people who gather with us, the people who, who are not part of our church, part of our communities, part of our global mm. community. Um, but what are the traps? Like how do we deal with... In, in some ways there are obvious ways, mm. it, like analogies between this text and its contemporary, you know, the, the contemporary ramifications. Or you could, you could just blithely apply this to an extremely complicated, heartbreaking, uh, violent contemporary situation. What, how do we make stuff relevant without, yeah. you know? No, this is a great question. I'll be interested to know your answer to it no, as no, well you, or, so or amusing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, for me you know, any biblical text, but particularly when we get back into some of these Older Testament texts, I think we've got to ask, you know, why is this story being told? 
what what's being remembered here. And certainly part of what is being remembered is that God gave us this land, often written down centuries later when the land has actually been taken away from them. Yes, so we've got a memory of God giving us this land and we want it back. Like, yeah. like the, that's kind of implied and a memory of what God has done with the people. So the retelling of the covenant with Abraham and, um, you know, all the way through liberation, yep. Exodus, etc. For me, that the opening setting here is really important at Shechem. So the other place we get the gathering at Shechem, and it's not in there. It's not yet the tribes of Israel because they don't exist yet, but is in Genesis thirty-five, where there's a gathering at Shechem, where again the people are told to put away their other gods. So there's a memory in the storytelling that Shechem is where God's people put away their idols. Yep, and and we can read that from two points of view because. We're all the way into Joshua already and we still don't have pure monotheism, (laughs) right? You know, we think of Israel as they worship one God, have no other gods before me. Clearly the people still have lots of other gods (laughs) because they're getting told, put your other gods away. Um, So I I think what this story is doing is primarily a narrative about at this place we chose God – and God chose us, and in choosing God, we chose an exclusive relationship with God that means putting away our other idols. Yep. And that's the primary story being told, but we cannot ignore the complex yes. context of that. But before I say more about that, what what was? how would you answer your own question? No, no, well, not better than what you've already <laughs> done, of course. Um, no, exactly. I think that's right to focus on what is the issue in the text rather than trivialising the text by mm. by reducing it in some kind of way, which can be a trap, or trivialising contemporary complex problems by thinking, oh, here's something from a text that I can just immediately put onto yeah. that. Um, I do think that there's, that there's really important stuff uh, to do with colonisation and dispossession yep. that is part of the narrative here, quite um, apart from the complex problems of the contemporary situation yes. um, in yep. this land. Uh, and uh, you were right to bring that earlier back to Australian um, awareness mm. Mm. about that question as well. Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, if I could say just one more thing, I actually think this would be an interesting text to preach, Yes, noting that, I think when we do preach these hard texts, and this would be a text of terror for people who are colonised, so we need to – I don't think we have to solve all those problems, but we need to name that this is a text that has done violence and can continue to do violence. But I would be focusing on verse 15 and this, you know, choose this day whom you will serve. And the people say, we're going to, we're choosing God because God liberated us, right? That this is their memory of, they give a coherent answer for why they choose God. And Joshua kind of comes back and says, oh, you can't do that. God's holy. So one of the threads that I think runs throughout, or at least connects back to the Matthew, is no one gets it all right. Right, it's it's the women falling asleep thing, right? Um, You know, you can't serve God because he's holy um, and he's jealous and he won't forgive your sins if you say you're going to forsake all other gods but don't. And this, of course, is also like a bit ironic because this is what the people will continue to do is commit idolatry and get rebuked for it. And they say, no, we will serve God. So there's something to play with here about choosing God and how – our faith, like our marriage relationships, like all sorts of other things, is a constant act of choice yes. 
to and sometimes to forsake other things to follow God. And that is a daily choice. So there's something here I think is actually quite beautiful about what it means to be a person of faith. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you, Robin. Wonderful invitation to us, I think, to end on. Great to have this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks, Kylie. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.